we're live with episode 37 of the Wake Up Podcast. And the fine gentleman we have here uh, smoking his pipe is Stefan Kinsella. For, for those who don't know him, he's a patent attorney in Texas, um, the best kind of Austrian, the ANCAP kind, and um, someone who's been writing and sort of, sort of doing like a lot of thinking and discussion in this space for many years. Um, so thank you for coming on, man. Glad to be here. Fantastic. Um, look, let's let's dive straight into um, one thing which always fascinates me is the, the 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 breadcrumbs or the journey about how someone finds uh, Austrian econ and and ANCAP. So so I actually found it through Bitcoin. Um, so 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 my journey was a little bit ass backwards for you know what, what I guess most people's journey is. So I'm I'm curious to sort of hear about your early inspirations um, and sort of what led you down this path? Because I think that's, um, for me, I find that really, really fascinating. Um, you might it, like, you know, uh, there's a book on. by Walter, Walter Block called, uh, oh hell, it's in my, it's, it's something like, uh, I chose liberty, something like that. And it's basically mm -hmm. uh, an assortment of, of stories from libertarians about how they became libertarians. Um, mm. It's so it's interesting. I, I have a chapter in there, and it's called mine. Is called uh, I think how I became a libertarian, and I have that on my mm -hmm. website. So that that kind of goes into my story. Uh, but basically, I came from like uh, nothing in the sense of political ideology. I was just like a young kid in high school, interested in you know science and philosophy and all kinds of things, and so. A teacher recommended that I read Ayn Rand, um, uh, The Fountainhead, and when I read that, I got interested in philosophy and then and, and libertarian sort of pro-capitalist free market thinking, and then she recommended like Henry Hazlitt and Mises, I think, in mm -hmm. some appendix. So I read Hazlitt, and then that led to eventually Rothbard and Milton Friedman and and all that. So I just – I developed a strong interest in economics and um, sort of as a supplement to – explaining how freedom works. Uh, then I went to engineering. I was an engineering undergrad. So that's really not, that's really more math and natural sciences type thinking. So I didn't really have much exposure officially to all the economics and history and political theory and philosophy. So I kind of did that on my own. And then when I went to law school, I learned a little bit more so that was my journey, and I, I just started being more and more strongly interested in it. I started writing a little bit in college, and then uh, when I got out of law school and started practicing, I started writing more and more like in the academic realm uh, for Mises Institute publications and law reviews and other things like that. Okay, let's let's just sort of pull on some of those earlier threads. So how old, how old were you when you first read Fountainhead? Like 10th or 11th grade, so 15. Yeah, okay. Something like that. Okay. Yeah, man. Holy crap. That's, um, that's a, that's a blessing. That's, that's, you know, the world needs more teachers like that because I think when I was, when I was sort of 22, I first got exposed to Ayn Rand's work, but exposed in the sense that my girlfriend's dad was reading it at the time, but I, you know, being a, a young dumb shit sort of following my own passions and business and stuff like that, I never actually read it to my everlasting, uh, I guess, regret. Like the first time I read Atlas Shrugged was only, I think, three years ago, and and I think Ayn Rand's work was some of you know the more powerful um, 
out there. So, so what, what do you think gave, so aside from the teacher recommending that, like, you know, teachers recommend shit all the time. Like, A, why did you? I think she, you know, I mean, I think she, uh, well, first of all, I think that, that this was like the early 80s, right around the time when Rand died. Um, and I was in Louisiana and I was at a Catholic school and just the librarian there knew that I read a lot and we talked a lot. So she just assumed I would like that and she was right. Um, and at that time, I think Ayn Rand always was the biggest hook or intro to libertarianism. Um, mm. I think nowadays it's more, it's broader and like Ron Paul sort of became the new guy. Mm -hmm. There's always mm -hmm. Milton Friedman. So it was really Friedman and Rand and now Ron Paul type. Uh, and that attracts different types of people, you know, uh, the Ron Paul movement attracts like younger activist types, maybe not, not really as intellectual. So they mm -hmm. don't read mm -hmm. as much. They watch YouTubes and they go march and they do political politicking. So it's a different crowd now. It's bigger, but kind of a different quality in a way mm -hmm. more radical than the old days. More people were minarchist in the old days, but they were more intellectual and scholarly. So Mm. In my own particular case, and by the way, converse, perversely, I almost I dislike the Fountainhead now because I I'm so against patent and copyright, and and the whole mm. theme, mm. Of, uh, the whole plot of uh, the Fountainhead is some guy blowing up a building. I mean, Howard Work is like a misanthrope. He's he's an IP terrorist. I now believe so. The Fountainhead <laughs> is not is not libertarian at all. I think it's actually a horrible. I mean, it's got some good individualist ideas, but they're kind of perverse because this guy is like a loner, doesn't have a history, doesn't have healthy relationships, hates his clients. I mean, it's something weird about the whole book. So mm -hmm. I still don't quite understand why it's such a good hook. Atlas Shrugged is way better. It's way more of a, of a blueprint Thank you. for liberty. Thank you. Um, Thank you. But, I 100% agree with that. But anyway, uh, I think for me, it resonated because I was uh, like in the rural south. Uh, I was sort of a, a, a loner because I was a, book, a bookworm, and I was also adopted, and because I was adopted, I never really had this idea that my heritage matters, so mm. I sort of like I have to make it – you know, I'm like I'm my own man. I started from nothing in a sense. You know, I have no history, no past, so I have to make it on my own, so I had this sort of independent spirit. Which is sort of what Rand appeals to, right? She she talks about you know you come from nothing and you make your way in the world. So I think it resonated with me because I had this uh, uh, rejection of this baggage of of ancestry and heritage, and so I was like I couldn't take credit or celebrate my you know black pride or Hispanic pride yeah, or yeah, yeah. or my my British lineage. I was just nothing. So I was like, fuck it, I'll be anything. So I think that's why it resonated with me personally. That's super interesting. That's super interesting. So so I, I've got a similar story in that sense of, you know, having uh, grown up with migrant parents in Australia, but I, I left home when I was really young and I actually changed my name. So my surname Svetsky um, in my language means of the world. And, and I grew up in a very patriotic sort of um, mm -hmm. family. My, you know, my uncle was really, you know, uh, Macedonian historian and um, you know all, all this sort of stuff and he he sort of wanted he was sort of pushing me along the way of wanting to grow up and become the leader of Macedonia and you know take down the government and bring it back to its former glory and all this crazy shit right and and I kind of broke out of that with some early reading and, and it wasn't really libertarian reading but what what broke me out was this sort of my natural individualist nature 
Um, but sort of my desire to go down the entrepreneurial path more than anything else. Um, and I kind of, you know, an early book for me was like, as trite as it might sound, but like rich dad, poor dad. And then I kind of went down yeah. that path and, and yeah, I, I moved out of home when I was young and I changed my surname. So I kind of like wanted to depart from family, broke my lineage and built sort of my own empire myself. And, and I think that's, there's sort of those ingredients, which is, you know, really interesting for me here, listening to you say what those base ingredients were for you. But I think the libertarian path really requires, I guess, or, 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 or that there's at least the correlation with um, being a bit of a, a lone soldier or a thinker or someone that um, has yeah. to have had done it for themselves. So I think that's an interesting. Well, yeah, and you have to. So I think that's sort of the psychological motivation for some people or the hook that gets you in, it explains why you're mm. interested. Uh, and you also have to have a certain degree of self-confidence and independence to mm. buck the top, like to, to buck the prevailing wisdom. Um, uh, but and then you also have to have a certain degree of passion for truth and consistency and, and a certain degree of intelligence because you have to like. I mean, once you are – if you're not a misanthropic person, like if you care about yourself and the rest of humanity, um, and you just want the best for everybody, which most people would say they, that they do, as long – if you have a little bit of economic literacy, which most people do not, right? Um, mm -hmm. If you just read economics in one lesson, that's basically all you need. If you, yeah. if you have that, and if you try to be consistent in your thinking, then you can't help but come to basically libertarian conclusions. Um uh, so you just have to care about intellectual consistency, be willing to think, read a little bit, learn a little bit, and then you'll be a libertarian. I think most people are soft or weak libertarians, and they would be stronger yeah. if they had time to care about consistency and to be principled, basically. I think the consistency is – so I always say like the, the libertarian position is the only – really consistent position yeah. of all of them because every, every wherever you diverge you end up uh, creating contradictions you know like i was i was actually um on a date last night with this girl and she was kind of talking about herself and how she's very individualist and all this sort of stuff um in terms of her personal life you know and she's sort of like oh when i was young i wouldn't show my parents um my grades if they if they told me but I would just show them when I wanted to because they were mine and it was my choices. And I was like, I told her, I said, you know, you, you're, you're a natural libertarian, you're, you're a natural individualist. Yeah. Um, but then later on in the discussion, she's talking about how, you know, oh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a socialist because I believe in wealth redistribution, all this sort of stuff. And I'm like, fucking, you know, these sort of, yeah. there's just absolutely no thinking happening here. And there's no consistency across how they want to behave for themselves, but then how they well, believe everyone else should behave. Well, you know, we're social creatures, right? So we learn a lot from osmosis and from what people do, what they tell us, and that's natural and unavoidable. And the way society is now, you're going to you're gonna absorb a lot of – I mean this is a, a total tangent. You're like, like I've come to the realization that alcohol is like a complete poison and a horrible thing. I mean I, I was normal. Mm -hmm. I quit several months ago. I just totally – I learned about it. I quit drinking because I realized how bad it is. Like it's a total poison. I'm not on an alcohol yep. spiel, but the point is people think it's normal because everyone does it, right? And if you challenge someone's belief, they'll they'll just start getting defensive about it. Well, no, it's 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 it helps you relax or it's good for your heart, which is all bullshit, right? But mm -hmm. the point is you you hear these things, right? And the same thing with the state, of course. Like people I mean, in, in most countries outside the US, 
they're used to socialized medicine and they can't even imagine what it's like to have a free market in medicine, right? Mm -hmm. uh, most mm -hmm. people can't imagine having a private road system. They're just used to it. So they try to fit things together that are not really compatible because they don't know what, what else they can do. And so then someone like us who tries to be consistent, they will accuse us of like being autistic or something or like being obsessed. Or extremists. Or, yeah. Oh, they'll, they'll trot out that stupid uh, – who is it? The set of uh, foolish consistency is the hobgoblin of little minds, um, which is just an excuse to be inconsistent, right? Because you're too yeah. lazy to try to, to figure out how to – like if you have two views that are contradictory, one at least one of them is wrong, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So you need mm -hmm. to stamp – you need to figure out which one is wrong, or maybe they're both wrong, but at least one of them is wrong. That, that was one of Ayn Rand's beautiful things. I think this is why I love Atlas Shrugged so much is, you know, the, the whole A is A, and, you know, contradictions don't exist. And she, she was sort of, it's, it, yeah. But, but of course, of course she didn't stick to it. I mean, she's, she's not human. So she was inconsistent on, on parts of her rights theory and her, her advocacy of intellectual property and also on her opposition to aggression and her opposition to anarchy so like they're both in tension with each other so she couldn't quite go all the way but at least she tried you know she tried to be consistent um i so i think rand is like a really good entree but you need to move past it at some point otherwise you're going to be an yes. objectivist uh uh cultist like i sort of was for a few years i mean you got to have strong enough fortitude to break out of it at some point um, by the way, that, that, that Kawasaki guy you mentioned, I used to have mildly positive thoughts about him from what I heard about him, and, but I heard him on a Bitcoin thing. I think it was – He's a safe. clown. He's, yeah. he was, he's, he's an idiot. I mean he's a total he's idiot. A, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I couldn't believe it, and I read a review that someone said his book is just full of totally trite advice. Now maybe simple trite advice is what you need at some point, but uh, he just seemed like a complete – arrogant and non-serious clown when he talked to say he's a he's a looney tune man he's a looney tune so so when i was you know i was when i read his book i was 16 you know so and i'd sort of yeah yeah not understood so so he, he's his basic trite advice I, I will give him credit where credit's due he managed to distill like uh entrepreneurial concepts into like some nice diagrams and shit like that which right. makes sense for a young person to right, think about right. how to be you know why, why is it better to be an entrepreneur or an investor than it is to be a fucking employee um you know and and so 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 that was useful but what i actually found out so funny story this is unrelated to um well, sorry related to kiyosaki but unrelated to the conversation is i found out many years later that he actually stole all of his um material from another guy called keith cunningham um okay. who's the actual sort of real deal so so the, the archetype of the rich dad was this guy um, called Keith Cunningham, who Kiyosaki was kind of like a helper at one of his courses and basically ripped off the, the information and, um, and repackaged it and, and sold it under his own banner, which I mean – Which, which by the way, I have, no, I have no problem with that whatsoever, except you know you should, you should acknowledge your sources if, if, it's, uh, if it's blatant and obvious. You should just be honest about it, you know? Correct. That, and, and that's what I think, you know, Kiyosaki, where, where he falls over is that he, he acts like it's all his, um, where it's sort of like he, he acts like he fucking knows it all, but he doesn't. He's just sort of he's, he's a very good marketer, but he's a dumb shit. So, so it's a, like 
I think we're drowning in those kind of people in this world anyway. I think in a, in a very fiatized world, we've got well, really and, good and, um, snake oil salesmen. And I, and I ran did that too, to a degree, right? She acted like she was the creator of all this body of, uh, of this integrated, sort of integrated comprehensive body of philosophy, right? That encompassed ethics and epistemology and metaphysics, philosophy, even aesthetics and of course politics and economics. Um, and she did cobble together a nice little body there uh, with some holes in it and some problems, but uh, but she drew from other people and she kind of admitted that, but she but she got pissed off when like Rothbard left her orbit and started kind of preaching his own version of some of the stuff mm. he learned mm. through her group and she accused him of plagiarism for not footnoting her. And so he went and he went and footnoted the original guy she had learned from just to just to you know, <laughs> like so she learned it from aristotle he got it from her he would just cite aristotle you know and it would annoy yeah. her that he, he so the the randians are weird because they 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 hate the libertarians they say that they're not true objectivists or they're not even true libertarians um because they don't have a, a moral foundation uh they don't want to be associated with them and yet they're pissed off at us for not giving her enough credit for our ideas it's like well which one is it why do you want us to give you credit if you are embarrassed by us being associated by us, with you? Yeah, I mean, which, which one is it yeah look i i think you know to to tie off the rand topic for me I, what what i think her greatest um contribution well and maybe not greatest but one of the most profound pieces for me was how she managed to weave all those things you mentioned into an actual narrative that was captivating like it, it's a really 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 good story um and and i think that is um for me super unique uh in the world because you know m most other works are you know are works of like you know theory or philosophy or something like that but she actually managed to weave it into a story which i think was yeah and she, she thought of herself as, she thought herself as a novelist first mm. and a philosopher second mm. like she came up with a mm. philosophy to make the novels good so but the novel yeah. way the story way of portraying her ideas was good um yeah i agree she was uh, she was an impressive person I, I do think she's the fountainhead so to speak of the uh of the libertarian movement um she, she did create it basically yeah 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 powerful one powerful one so okay so the the, the questions that i had here were sort of you know why or how you became libertarian so, so i guess your your journey then was kind of randian initially and then you said hazlitt so you kind of went austrian economics and that sort of libertarianism libertarianism may have emerged after that in terms well of no, i was libertarian I, I mean rand's politics is what we would call minarchist mm. or night watchman state mm -hmm. or limited government libertarianism even kind of constitutionalist um so i i accepted her I thought she was right in her critique of libertarians. I, like, even though they sounded identical to her political philosophy, and I mean the minarchist libertarians, she said they weren't. So I just assumed she was right. But the more I read mm. their pamphlets and things on at college, I said they're the same as your philosophy. And I also accepted her critique critique of uh, of anarchy, and I accepted her 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 argument for intellectual property at first because I, I she was so good on other things. I assumed she was right. Mm -hmm. uh, so I, I then I started realizing the first thing I said was, well, she's wrong about libertarians. They're identical to her political philosophy. So I started becoming a libertarian, but I was hostile to anarchists. But then I read the Tannehills and Rothbard, David Friedman, 
people like that. And I finally realized, and Robert, even Nozick, who's not an anarchist, but he may be, he made me an anarchist in a way. Uh, so then I finally said, look, Rand is wrong about anarchy. I became an anarchist. So it wasn't Austrianism. Yeah. It was really the radical, the radical politics of Rothbard, those kind of guys. Yeah, well, I mean, if if you've read Rothbard and you're not a fucking anarchist, you don't get it. But I think that's one of the things. Like he's, for me, I was talking to Jimmy Song about this. Like for me, Rothbard is like the the most consistent uh, philosopher that I've ever come across. Like his his work for me has been some of the most uh consistent on point like yeah ruthless that i've that i've ever read so yeah he's yeah, great I, on, I guess... he's great on uh, economics he's great on methodology of economics he's great on um political philosophy and libertarianism he's, he's really he's even good on history yeah mm -hmm. he's he's amazing he's the he's the central libertarian figure i believe in modern libertarian thought 100 percent agree so so i actually want to get you to talk talk me through um rand's critique on anarchy and rand's critique on um or, or rand's support of intellectual property and then i, I want to sort of use that as a as a segue into um your current position on um intellectual property things like that so so maybe let's start with the anarchy piece. well i hate to psychologize but i sort of think maybe what happened was uh her mistakes on both those areas were because you know, she left the Soviet Union, which was horrible. She came to the U.S., which was infinitely better. I actually believe that. I'm not. A, I'm not an America hater. I mean, I know we have problems, mm -hmm. but so she came here and understandably loved the country, and so she loved the Constitution because the Constitution, for all its flaws, sounds libertarian-ish compared to the Soviet Union, right? So mm -hmm. I think she did what I did with her. Like I took for granted that she was right on the areas I wasn't clear about. So she just took the constitution as a blueprint that was basically correct i mean she wanted to correct a few things if you remember the end of atlas she has judge narragansett striking out a couple things amending it making it perfect but the idea is mm -hmm. that it's almost perfect already mm -hmm. and of course the constitution is minarchist at best i mean it, it supports a government you need a government but it's limited to do its proper functions and it also has patent and copyright in there so she came over here and she thought that well, to have a free society, you need a limited government bounded by a constitution, and you need to have patent and copyright laws. That's part of capitalism, right? So mm -hmm. then she came up with an apparatus to argue for all that, and so for intellectual property, she weaved it into her, her rights theory, and she made the mistake most people make, which is she over-relied upon the Lockean idea, which is uh, – which is the, the Lockean idea is that we own – property because it's unowned at first. God gave the world to us in commons. You own yourself. You own your body. You own your labor because you own your body. And if you go out and use things in the world, you mix your labor with those things, and you stamp upon it your personality by mixing your labor with it. So you're mixing with this unowned thing some stuff that you own, and therefore you own it. That's sort of the metaphorical imagery he gives. Mm -hmm. Which is a, a, a colorful argument. I think it's not rigorously correct. I mean, the conclusion is correct, but it's not because you own your labor, right? And you don't literally mix your labor. That's just that's just a, you know a pedagogical explanation. What it really means is you transform an unknown resource and you put a border up, which is 
a visible public link between you and that resource, which distinguishes that resource from everything else, and it, it provides a public guidepost to everyone else that now you're using and claiming this thing, and you have a better claim to it than them because you used it first. That's all it means, and I think that uh, that argument is correct, but to say that you own it because you own your labor and you mix your labor with it is not technically correct. But once you believe that, then you start thinking of labor as something that you own. Okay. And once you believe that, then you 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 could make the argument, well, if I create if I if I I can I can own a, a tangible scarce resource by mixing my labor with it, according to Locke. But I can also create other things that are valuable to me, like ideas and inventions and novels. And if I expend my labor to create those things, then I own those things too because you obviously own whatever you create with your labor, you see, and that's wrong. That's a mistake. I've criticized that before in speeches, but that, that, that's a fundamental mistake, and that's absorbed widely in the West, and it per permeates all of political theory. Uh, I, actually, I actually think it led to the labor theory of – so that's called the labor theory of property of John Locke. And then that sort of modif uh, that sort of morphed and led and turned into the labor theory of value of Adam Smith, and then Ricardo, and then Karl Marx. So this whole labor theory of property and labor theory of value is basically the underpinning of socialism and communism, right? It's the idea that you own mm. your labor, and when you mix your when you expend your labor, you get some property right out of it. So like a worker on an assembly line puts his labor into building a product for the employer. The employer then sells that product for a profit and only pays the employee a wage, and the employer gets the surplus profit. But because that profit came from the labor mixed into the object, which the, which was produced by the employee, it's a type of theft of his labor. That's the whole Marxian theory, right? So it's wage, it's wage theft. So he's being exploited because he's being stolen from, right? Which is false, but it's based upon this labor theory, and Ayn Rand had that too. She thinks that if you labor on something, if you create it, then you own it, which is just not true. The way you own things is you find it or you buy it from someone who owned it. That's it. Creation is not a source of ownership. This is a fundamental mistake everyone makes. Creation is a source of wealth. So like creation just means transformation. It means you take up an object that you own, so you already own it either by contract… Like you bought it from someone else, or you found it in the in the in the in the wilderness unowned. You have that natural resource, that 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 factor of production, and you use your effort and your intellect and your labor to transform it into some more useful configuration. You rearrange it basically, and when you do that, you make you create wealth because now that thing is more useful. And so you've increased your wealth in the world because you can sell it for money. Or you can use it yourself, right? You, if you transform metal into a plowshare, now you can till your fields more efficiently, etc. Right? If you make a, a fishing line, you can catch fish that way, right? Or a fishing net. Um, so, creation is not a source of ownership, but people think it is because when you apply your labor and effort and you create, you're usually more wealthy, and they conflate that with ownership, but. You own the things that have been rearranged. And by the way, this is speaking of consistency. Ayn Rand has some passages where she says we don't really create things metaphysically. We just rearrange them, and we make them more useful to us. And Mises and Rothbard say the same thing, and they're correct.
But then she says, well, if you create something, you own it. So she talks about creating values. We own we own values that we create. So she conflated – she says the purpose of life is to create values. Now that's a weird way of, of expressing the idea that the purpose of life is to achieve your ends, right? To, to seek ends and to try to use means rationally to achieve them, which is correct. But it doesn't mean these ends are values. It means you value the end. So she, so Mises was better on this, right? For him, value is a subjective phenomenon. You demonstrate that you value something by acting to achieve it, but it's not like the thing has a value inside of it, which is the mistake that, like, say, Peter Schiff and others make when they criticize Bitcoin. The intrinsic they say, value stuff, yeah. Yeah, they yeah. say gold has intrinsic value, but Bitcoin doesn't. Well, nothing has intrinsic value, right? We value things. So you got to think of value as a verb, not a noun. Things don't have value. We value things by our actions. And by the way, Ayn Rand recognized this when she said value is something that you act to gain and or keep, which is perfectly consistent with Mises' idea of demonstrated preference, that you demonstrate that you value something by acting to achieve it. But it's not like the thing has value inside of it right, in an objective way. So these mistakes on labor and the source of rights and the nature of value… Is what led her to make a mistake in thinking that if you create some useful idea, which Rothbard would call a recipe, right? So you have to think of human action, which is what Mises calls praxeology, the study of the science or the logic of human action. Everything it is very simple. It sounds daunting, but it's not. It's just a complicated word he came up with, praxeology, which means the logic of action. Every human action, everything we do is basically looking at the world, imagining the future that's coming, being dissatisfied with what we think is happening, and we, we try to interfere with the course of events to change things. To do that, we have to interfere with cause and effect laws, causal laws. To do that, we have to use scarce means that have an effect. So you use a tool. You use an object. You grab it. You manipulate it with your body, and you do something that changes the course of events. So all human action is the use of scarce means to try to achieve an end. That's, that's what it is. An end is a goal, and sometimes that goal is to achieve the ownership or the control of a scarce resource. Like, um, you know, I build a, I, I make a net to catch a fish. That's the goal of my action is to have a fish. And really, the goal of that is an intermediate goal, is to feed my hunger that I foresee is coming. Right? It's not really the fish. The fish is a means for my hunger. Um, and sometimes it's something intangible, or it's it's just a state of affairs. It's not even an owned thing. Like. Um, if I want to have a wife or get a girlfriend like you did last night, you took a girl on a date to have the company of a woman. You didn't, you didn't acquire an owned thing. You don't have now an owned experience. You have a memory of an experience, and you have a relationship you've built, but you don't have an owned thing. So the end of that action was something different than acquiring ownership of a thing. Anyway, I'm on a tangent now. That's actually relevant for the mistake people make. When they argue that intellectual property is 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 legitimate because ideas are ownable because people buy them, so they make the mistake that if you sell something, that means you had to own it. But that's not true because selling just means you you, you got money in exchange for doing something, right? So you can pay someone to to paint your fence. That doesn't mean you own his painting. It means you. You own the fence, right? You already owned it, and you own the paint he puts on it. You don't own the act of painting. 
yeah well, I, I kind of does to get the money yeah I, I i mean that example i kind of think the difference between a product and a service maybe and that might just be a a, a very simplistic viewpoint of it but coming back to the sort of the Lockean theory that you were discussing, you know, this idea that, you know, you own yourself, you own your, you know, your time, your energy, and you sort of mix that labor with something. I mean, I, I've actually, again, not having had um, as much, you know, time to, to study and think about this as you have, but like, I, I've, I've generally aligned with that idea because I've always thought that, you know, that that effort that energy you put into something you know has has come from you and then you know you sort of mix yep um your stuff but 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 i've always had a problem with then um the the idea of like I, i've got a quote which is ownership is that which uh you can protect so in, in some ways I, I don't know how that fits in with what you kind of said is about you know taking something that was yep. traditionally in the in the public sphere and kind of like yeah, this and this so, is a this is a subtle area of political economy, really. That it's not that hard, but you have to think carefully about it. I used to talk in those terms too, and it's fine if you talk loosely and realize you're talking loosely, like mm -hmm. in metaphorical terms. But it can lead to confusion and equivocation because these terms start having different meanings. So, for example, in the Bitcoin space, people say I own a Bitcoin. What they really mean is they control it. Or they possess mm -hmm, it. Mm -hmm, they have mm -hmm. the ability yep. to send it to someone. But yep. they use the word ownership because in the field of law, when you own a physical resource, that implies that you have the ability to use it. But it's not the same thing. So in law and in life, we have to distinguish between the descriptive world and the prescriptive world, or you have to dis distinguish between the economic world and the juristic or legal world. Uh, we have to distinguish between is and ought, right? So when you, when you have an economic analysis, it can apply even to one guy, which we call Crusoe, Crusoe alone on his island. So Crusoe alone on his island has to employ means to achieve ends. He has to act. He has to use physical resources, which means he possesses or controls them. He doesn't own them because ownership means the legal right to possess. So ownership is just the ability to control. I'm sorry, possession is the ability to control. Ownership is the legally recognized right to control, and they are different. Uh, when you have society arise and you have other people you're dealing with, that is useful because we have division of labor. We have cooperation. We have society. We can take comfort in the company of other people, so there are benefits to it, but the danger of it is that now you have other human actors who might all want to use or multiple – humans might want to use the same scarce resource at the same time so there could be conflict now so mm -hmm. now i could previously use this object that i found on my island to do something but now when there's many people more than one person might want to use that thing and that leads to conflict and violence and fighting which is inefficient and creates strife and and, and prevents you from using the thing peacefully and having long-range plans about it because you're not sure if you'll be able to use it. So in society, we come up with laws, and the laws assign property rights, and they say, okay, for the types of things that people can fight over, have a conflict over, which is scarce resources, we need to have a rule that says who gets to own that thing, like who has the right to control it, and we use the Lockean rules to, to, to answer that question. So who gets to use this thing? 
Well, it's the person who found it first and started using it first when it was unowned. Because if it was unowned, when you start using it, you have a better claim than anyone else because you weren't taking it from someone else who had it first. right? And once you have it, now you have an earlier claim than someone who comes later. And if they were to have a better claim than you, that means there's no such thing as ownership. There's only possession. You see, so once you once you think of the idea of ownership as having to exist to be distinct from possession, the first guy using it has to have a better claim than later people. Okay, so 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 just quickly, the 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 difference there then between ownership and possession. What um, one is one is control, one's the right to control. So, okay. for example, if I if I loan you my car. I still own the car, but you're the one possessing it because I gave you the right to use it. So you have the actual mm -hmm. control of it. Or if I steal your gun, now I'm possessing it, but you're the owner. You have the right to possess it, which means you have the right to go to the legal system and get the gun back. So, so ownership is who had it first or who possessed it first? Would that be a good way to put ownership, it? Ownership is the person who got it first or the person who acquired it from that person by contract. So there's two yeah. ways to get ownership of something by contract or by first by first possession, basically, which we call homesteading or or original appropriation. So okay. either you so, first you're the first cool. one to get it. Mm -hmm. So like if if I'm the first one who gets it, I'm the I have a better claim than anyone in the world because I'm the first one. Except if I sold it to someone, now that guy has a better claim against anyone in the world because he has it earlier than all of them. Now I had it earlier than him. But I gave it to him by contract, so now my claim mm -hmm. is gone. So mm -hmm, those are mm -hmm. the only two ways to get property. Okay, it's by cool. Contract so, so then, or by first use. Perfect. So, so that that was that was the piece that I wanted to clarify there. So ownership emerges from first possession and then continues through yeah. contractual um, transactions or contractual. So, which, so when you said earlier that ownership is what you can, what you can, what you can defend. I think you said mm -hmm. something like that, which is a common yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, in a, in a sense, that's true, but that's sort of a blending of the two functions of ownership. And the so ownership emerges because of conflict, right, in society, um, because there's conflict. And for those people that want to live in a peaceful way, they prefer to have rules that assign ownership so they can live in peace with each other. And you know, now I know what's mine is mine, and what's yours is yours. And if, if I need to use the thing that's yours, now I have to go to you and make a bargain with you, right? Cooperate with you. So that's the mm -hmm. system most civilized people prefer. Um, now, over, but as, as a matter of fact, over time, if you're not able to defend your rights, then they will be lost just as a practical matter, right? Like by conquest or just by time. Um, so there is a practical aspect to ownership. Like it's not, in, it's not a self enforcing thing. God's not up there making sure that contracts and property rights are respected. Um, it, it depends upon a consensus in the community and an effective legal mechanism for them to actually work. Otherwise, it's useless, and we do have a war of all against all. We're back to savagery, right? And we're back mm -hmm, to the mm -hmm. pre the pre civilized pre societies state of affairs, like an animal type life. Um, yeah. But so long as so long as we're in society, we're we we have a body of norms that say. You should have the right to control this thing, and if someone takes it from you, you try to get it back either with your self-help or with 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 the help of your neighbors, basically through through institutions. So okay, so so coming then from someone who might say two two, two questions here is how does one establish the original um, 
the original possession? Like how, how can someone establish a claim and say, look, no one else owned this. You know, I owned it first. Like how does one establish that, A? And B, um, the, the next question that I'll follow up with is going to be um, how do we enforce this, um, this idea of property rights or ownership um, in the absence of some form of uh, yeah. monopoly on right. um, enforcement? Okay, so those are two questions. So, um, uh, so I think of property rights and contract law. Contract law is derivative of property rights, but let's talk about contract first. So, mm -hmm. imagine imagine you own a car, and you want to give it or sell it to me. How do you do that? You have to communicate your your intention to give it to me somehow. So, in a sense contractual transfer is a matter of communication which is a matter of language so the question really is a question about language or so the question would be like saying how do we communicate things to people there's lots of ways we communicate things to other people uh, we can speak we can write or you can just you can you can do things that signify things right in a community where people know what what actions mean you know if i raise my fist at you that might be interpreted as I'm about to hit you, right? Or if I sh if I look at you with a bad look, that mean I may mean displeasure, right? So, uh, or if I live in a neighborhood where it's the custom in the area for people to walk up to their neighbors' doors and knock on the door to ask for a favor, like I need to borrow a cup of sugar, um, then by living in that neighborhood and by not putting up a posted sign saying I'm opting out of this default understanding. That people are entitled to walk on my property, knock on my door, and ask me for an innocuous favor. I'm opting out of that rule. If I don't do that, then I'm effectively communicating, okay, I'm going along with the majority opinion, the majority custom in this area, which is you have my permission or license to use my property in this minor way, right? So it doesn't always, so that's implicit, right? It doesn't always have to be explicit and written down in a written contract or even spoken language. Uh, in fact, two people that don't speak the same language can exchange right by by mm -hmm. signs. I can hand you an apple, you hand me your banana, we both walk away happy. We know what we meant. So this is really a question of language. And it's not it's it's interesting and there's a whole science about that, but it's not that complicated. But it's a practical question about what people meant. So when we come back to property, it's similar to contract. So if I own a contract, if I own a resource and I want to give it to you, I have to indicate my assent to that or my consent by some expression. I can hand it to you. I can uh, I can uh, go along with the default customs in the area. Let those make the uh, the assumption be brought to life. I can say something. I can write it down. Something, but there needs to be some objective indication that my intention was to give it to you and that you wanted to intend to receive it. Now, when you come to owning property, so Hoppe, Hans-Hermann Hoppe, who is a student of uh, Rothbard, so he basically builds on Mises and Rothbard, and I, that's my my background. I think those are the, the mm -hmm. three key thinkers that for political philosophy. Um, Mises on economics and a little bit on pol politics, Rothbard on both, and Hoppe on all and all three. Uh, so he took the radicalism of Rothbard, and he was even more Misesian than Rothbard. So he he kind of combined the three. And I build on those. I mean, so that's what that's what my lineage is, is those guys. Um, so Hoppe thinks of homesteading, which is the locking idea that you mix your labor with something. 
is basically he calls it embroidering. And if you think about it, like the word private property, I've always thought or I've long thought that that is a misnomer because in a sense, public property is a better term because property can't be private. It's public in the sense that there have to be publicly visible borders because the whole function of property is to have a rule that says who owns what. So that rule has to identify what the borders of the property are, and there has to be some objective visible public link between that resource and some actor so you know who the owner is right so the way you do that is you stamp as Locke would say you stamp your personality on it by mixing your labor in it which is metaphorical hoppe would say you embroider it so in the simple case you put a fence up around it like you, if you want to you see an empty plot of land and you want to build the farm on it you put a fence up you build some crops you build the log cabin now you have a farm so now there's objective signs to the world mm -hmm. that this is, is, is no longer unowned. It is owned by someone. So it's been transformed, but more importantly, it's been transformed in a way that puts up borders or boundaries. And public evidence can reveal who that person is. So it's either the person who did it, who people in the community know, or it's the person he sold it to. So when you sell it, that act of sale is also a public record that people can investigate because you communicated it and there's some record of that communication see so it all ties in together beautifully um mm -hmm. so it's really a matter of communication so when you come to own a resource you have to do it in a way that's practically and pragmatically uh sufficient to serve as a warning to other people you know if you just walk across the virgin forest and then later you claim you owned it it's like you're 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 inner you didn't transform it at all. You didn't set up borders. You did something that multiple people could do, which is why Hoppe says you can't own something by mere verbal decree. This is why, like the kings in, in Europe couldn't just say, I declare that the entire North American continent of wilderness, you know, really kind of half owned by the Native Americans, <laughs> but is unowned and I, I own it by decree. So I'm giving a patent. That's where patents come from, by the way, a patent, which is an open letter to some guy to go and claim it for me. So he steps foot on North America. He claims the entire territory for the king, even though he hasn't transformed it or put up borders or anything. Um, that's wrong. And the, the reason that's wrong is because if you if you have the rule that property or resources can be owned by verbal decree, then a million people could do that at the same time. So mm -hmm. it wouldn't solve conflict. The whole purpose of property rights is to solve conflict. Solve conflict. But if you come okay. up with a rule that creates conflict, that's contrary to the whole nature of property rights. So it has to be a type of action that there cannot be conflict over. And that means the first person who gets there, there can only be one first person. So there can't be conflict over first claims because only one person gets to it first. But you have to do it in a way that leaves a trace of your connection to it, a link. Hoppe calls it a link. Anyway, that's mm -hmm, a compressed mm -hmm, version mm -hmm. of the theory that I think is the most commonsensical, clear, non-metaphorical way of explaining the core, the core of all private Western law, Roman law, civil law, law merchant, even Roman canon law, or even church canon law, and the common law of the West. And all legal systems, in a sense, have to be built upon that. Um, and they're just not consistent. It's just like your regular person is soft libertarian, but they're not consistent. These legal systems aren't consistent either because people weren't thinking about this fundamental deductive principled approach to it 
they were doing something pragmatic to solve problems. And because the world is a, an orderly, rational world, the solution they came up with tends to converge upon what we would deduce from our armchairs. You know, just like many guys seeing an elephant, feeling different parts of it or feeling the same thing, it's no surprise that the deductive or principled approach to things converges on the pragmatic or consequentialist approach. So I've never been one that thought that practicality – even Ayn Rand said this. She said the, the moral is the practical, right? There, mm -hmm. There's no – you don't have to choose. Are you a consequentialist or are you a, 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 a deontological, they call it, or a principled libertarian? I mean if you're forced to choose, you have to choose your principles really. But in the long run, there's no, there's no divergence. Now utilitarianism is what I think of as a subset of consequentialism. So consequentialism is perfectly fine because the principles that we come up with are principles we come up with in the real world of conflict to solve problems. So the point of these principles is to have good consequences or outcomes for humanity. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. consequentialism, broadly speaking, is fine. But the way to achieve consequentialism is to have principles, right? But utilitarianism as a subset of consequentialism is problematic for methodological reasons because number one value is subjective and it's not cardinal it's not a number there's yeah, no numbers approach yeah. to value and it's not interpersonally comparable and i would argue it's not even comparable for the same person across time like i don't value this pipe right now the same as i valued it 10 minutes ago there's they're just different things in time and and furthermore ethically speaking even if you could show that someone values one thing more than someone else in, in cardinal terms, still doesn't mean you have the right to get – like you could say that uh, Bill Gates has billions of dollars and values that billionth dollar less than a poor person would. I don't even think that's necessarily true, and it's incoherent for, for economic reasons right? because you can't compare these things. But even if it was true, it still doesn't mean… That it's ethically okay to take Bill Gates' dollar and give it to someone else because it's theft. It violates the mm -hmm. principle that people should have what they own. Yes. So, yeah. so there's so many problems with utilitarianism as a subset of consequentialism. So I don't want to see I don't want to be endorsing utilitarianism um, by saying consequentialism is fine. The problem is sometimes people use the word utilitarianism as a synonym for consequentialism. But if they're being strictly technically correct, I would oppose utilitarianism, um, which, by the way, is where Ayn Rand got confused in her critique. So she liked Mises, so she, but she criticized him as being a subjectivist. But she, by subjectivist, she meant relativism, moral relativism, whereas by subjectivism, Mises meant that value is in the eye of the beholder, like you beholder, act to gain… Yeah. Which Ayn Rand actually believed because she said value is something you act to gain and or keep. So this is the importance – this shows the importance of keeping terms clearly defined and straight, and if they have ambiguous or dual meanings, you have to keep that in mind and be careful not to slip into unintentional equivocation or even worse, intentional equivocation, which a lot of people do. Like, like, like Menarchists, when they, when they argue for the state, they'll equivocate on the word government. Like they'll, they'll try to trap you by saying you believe in law and order, don't you? Yes. Well, then you believe in government, so how can you oppose the state? It's like, well, so now they're – so they first equate government to law and order, and then they equate it to the state. 
and that's because they're statists, and they believe that order can only come from the state. But they're still using the word in two different senses. But because we disagree with them on political theory, we think the state and law and order are different things and that law and order can be achieved apart from the state and in fact cannot be achieved by the state because the state undermines law and order. Um, anyway. No, that, 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 was, that was a really good set. So I want to mention the utilitarian thing that I wholeheartedly agree with that actually J Jimmy and I were discussing that and we, we, we had a conversation about, um, you know, where does, uh, how does morality um, emerge in the absence of uh, something like religion? And, and, and you know, he, he thought I was making a utilitarian argument for it, but my, my argument was not utilitarian. And I think you kind of described why just then is my argument was one of, um, you know, the, the consistency of principles um, yeah. and principles are things that emerge over time. Um, that you know, uh, broadly consistent with the flow of sort of existence and the flow of life, and sort of my interpretation of what I've you know I guess understood over you know my my study across different subjects. So it's by no means as deep as you know what you just discussed. Then um, let, let and, me ask and you a question. You, um, yep. Let me let me ask you a question. So I think Jimmy, who I like a lot, I'm I'm, I'm respecting him more and more because I it. I've talked to him. I, I at first I thought he was just like a latecomer to liber like libertarianism. Like he just happened to start learning a little bit about it because he was surrounded by a bunch of libertarians. Like I thought he was a Bitcoin at first, but now I'm realizing he's pretty deep into Austrian economics and, and, and libertarian theory. Uh, but I think he's a, he comes at it from a Christian point of view, or that's part of his mm. thing, right? Um, mm -hmm. Are you are you part of the are you Christian yourself? Or are you are you were you? No, okay, no. so so that's why there was a that's why there was a, there's an interesting another thing that's probably too hard to get into here, but there's another interesting connection between legal positivism and logical positivism and all the stuff we've been talking about. Um, like I think there's a connect. Logical positivism is the scientific idea that the only scientific or true statements are those that are empirically testable, right? Which is just it's contradictory on its face because that statement itself is not testable, but you think it's true. So, so empirical empiricism has to be built upon an a priori base in a sense, right? Mm -hmm. So they're both they mm -hmm. both have to have validity, um, and 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 legal positivism is the idea that rules can only come from a sovereign, like be announced or decreed. Now, those of us who believe in anarchy and libertarians think there's a standard of morality or political norms outside of some government authority or state authority. Um, and as an atheist, I even think that's true of, of ethics and God because when we say God is good, he's not the definition of good. He's not the source of good. He, he is good because he happens to conform to this outside notion of good, right? I know mm -hmm, this is a hot mm -hmm. a theological debate and the religionists will quibble or whatever, but in a sense, so the, the religionists, especially the Catholics, uh, uh, have more of a natural law type Thomistic view, which is more compatible in form to our libertarian views, right? Like Rothbard was a natural law kind of guy, natural rights kind of guy. Um, but in a sense, the religionists are still logical positivists – or sorry, legal positivists because ultimately they believe God decrees what's right and wrong. 
So mm, mm. most statists believe that the legislature or the state can decree what's right and wrong, and the religious libertarians, to their credit, reject that, but they push it back one level. God can decree what's right and wrong. Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, and, however, and that, God is supposed to be infallible and all good, so at least his <laughs> – He's got a better correct, claim to that. Which, mean, which means libertarian. Which means libertarian. Yeah. Yeah. So. But the state is corrupt. God's not corrupt. So if we're gonna have someone decree the rules, at least it would be God, not the not the state. Okay. I, I give them yeah. the credit for that, but yeah, that's um yeah, I think the, the, I can't remember if this came from a podcast I was doing or something, but it's sort of sort of the idea that um and then this kind of aligns with what you mentioned about positivism is, you know, that there's principles sort of emerge and, and I'm, I'm a big believer of sort of the, the bottom up theory of existence and life is, you know, things sort of emerge over time. Um, and, you know, the more consistent they are and the more in line with, uh, you know, reality they are, the, the you know, the, the, the longer they exist and, you know, the more so I kind of view principles as sort of almost like a, um, like, you know, get uh, what's the word? Um, kind of like a groove in the in the fabric of of existence. It's it's something that you know it's always there, and and things will sort of flow along those principled lines. And you know, we'll always have idiots come up with you know different types of methodologies and you know positivist viewpoints on things which don't sort of align with those grooves. You know, they sort of run against the grain, but you know, the the flow of life ends up kind of you know, making those things obsolete. And I actually don't think that that requires the decree of a, you know, of a, of a God. Um, you know, I think that that is stuff that emerges. You, you muted yourself. Here, here's one, yeah, here's one way I think about it. Um, the reason to live by principle, it's sort of like a convergence of reasons, which is again, like the reason consequentialism and, and, and principle thinking and deontological thinking, a priori thinking converge on each other. Um, number one is like conceptual efficiency. I mean, the reason we, we have concepts instead of just living by instinct and by pure, by, pure, uh, by pure data perception, by percepts, is we have high level concepts to understand the world, right? Um, and we, had, we, we don't, we're above the animal, the, the mere animals, but who have to live by instinct. So rising above instinct allows us to do greater things, right? But you have to know what to do in an unexpected situation, right? Which is why prejudice is useful. I mean, prejudice just means prejudging a situation because mm -hmm. you don't have time mm -hmm. to investigate everything. So if you see something that looks suspicious, you know, sort of like an instinctual conceptual thing, you have a default assumption and you have to act on it. Otherwise, your whole life is an ad hoc a series of ad hoc decisions, and you don't have time to research them all. And if it's just ad hoc, it might as well be random, right? So we have principles because you need, and then also because we live in society, your reputation matters, and your reputation reflects your character. People need to know what your character is because that's how they, that's how they assess what your human action structure is. Like they they classify you as a threat or as a friend. Someone useful to trade with, someone that's a possible enemy. So they, they look at your character, and your character's revealed in your actions. You have a reputation. So if you have a reputation for honesty, for example, people are more likely to trade with you. You're going to succeed. You're going to prosper. They're going to prosper. So 
how do you have a reputation for being honest? The best way is to be honest. But to be honest, you have to have a principle that says I'm going to be honest in every situation, mm. even if I can't see exactly why in this case, uh, like even if I think I could get away with it in this case. Because if you take the stance, I'm going to tell the truth except when I can get away with it, because we're, we're, we're holistic people and we're not actors, you can't be a complete – I mean we have a psychology. If you live your life as a fraud… Eventually, people notice because they get good at noticing that because it's to their advantage to be able to notice that because they need to know the character of people they're dealing with, right? Whether they're going to be ripped off or stabbed in the back. So it's useful to live by principles because that reveals your character as someone who lives by principles to people. So there's all kinds of reasons to live by principle. Um, and then the question is, what are, what are those principles? And in the micro case, you could. And another thing is you'll, you'll have people that disagree with us. They will come up with these ad hoc examples like, well, what about two guys on a lifeboat and only one can live? What do your libertarian rules say about that? And my response is always, well, what, did your, what are your socialist rules say about that? I mean if you're coming up with a situation <laughs> where someone's got to die, this is just not a situation where everyone can live in peace and prosperity and harmony together. So tragedy is possible in the world. How does having socialism s prevent tragedy? I mean it, it's just a stupid – so you're criticizing our theory for not being um, not being God basically, preventing every possible tragedy. And even God doesn't do that, right? God lets bad things happen too. So I mean you're criticizing us for doing something your theory doesn't stop either. So okay, so libertarianism doesn't solve every lifeboat scenario. Yeah, because there's no solution to those situations. <laughs> you know, how about let's talk about real life where we, we sometimes we can live in pe peace and prosperity with each other. So then the question is, what's the principle? Yeah, always, always love those um, examples. The amount of stupid examples people have asked me. It's like, so what if you and Godzilla were in a car and you're driving at? Yeah, it's like, where the fuck did you even come up with this example? And how is it even possible? To answer that it's like what do you think i have oh man yeah it's um okay so, so then let's let's move into then our second question so someone asks okay uh so, so your explanation then is uh about the first question about how, how do we prove uh first position is you know that uh you can't just sort of claim it with words there right. needs to be some sort of um deductive or there needs to be some sort of linkage uh, all the way an, an objective um, hoppe calls it intersubjective intersubjectively ascertainable that's more of a kantian phrase uh, or yeah. and a synonym for that is objective it's some objective publicly visible link right okay. which usually in, involves in the trans that, transformation mm -hmm. and in the absence of that you basically uh just the lapa basically someone who just says that you own a but in reality you have, you have no <laughs> yeah, way to prove it yeah yeah so okay so um so then uh mr status over here then asks uh well how the fuck do you enforce that um and who has the right to enforce that um and how how, how does that function uh in the absence of some form of authority um, well so i i would i would first say well what makes you think the authority is going to enforce it i mean this government authority governments routinely invade rights um mm -hmm. and ultimately this question is the is the is the randian the critique of the of the randians who 
the the ultimate logic of their view that that you can't have private or competing say justice or defense agencies because they would have war against each other well the logic of that is that you have to have a one world government you can only have one government mm. right uh, but they never favor that because they say well ideally that is what we want they admit that but they say but right now that would result in more socialism because like the west is quasi libertarian but the rest of the world is even more socialist so if you if you combine the whole world into a mass democracy then we've lost right well but that's the case even in, in within a large country you know uh, the us i mean why not let have smaller and smaller smaller units there's no limit uh, to the units so i would say first of all the government doesn't protect rights it undermines rights um, so all you could hope for is that is that when you have norms they emerge because there's a sufficient consensus in society people by and large most people are decent people and they want to live in peace with each other and so they will the only solution is for them all to agree that we have to use our reason to come up with a reasonable set of rules and as i just explained the only rules that are reasonable is first use and contract because if first use is not your primary rule then no one could ever use anything because you have these unknown things out there and no one would ever use it we'd all just die so you have to let people use things the first time for them to ever be used well mm -hmm. if someone uses it the first time either they have ownership of it or they don't if they do then that's the main principle if they don't then we don't have ownership because that means that a second person who comes later has a better right or as much right to take it as the first person, which means we don't have ownership. We just have possession. We have – we're back to the state of nature. We're war all against all. So – and this is what Hoppe calls the latecomer principle, right? A latecomer has to have a worse claim than an earlier user, a prior user. And it's like the regression theorem of Mises in money. He traces the, the current purchasing power of money, like gold. Back to an initial day when it didn't have a monetary value, it was just a bartered commodity, right? That's a regression theorem. So a same type of logic can be used um, if you have this idea of ownership itself, right? Ownership itself implies the first use principle because ownership means that ownership is distinct from possession, which means that someone who has the right to own it uh, owns it even if he doesn't possess it, right? But that implies that. Whoever owns it owns it even if someone takes it from them, and that's mm -hmm. a latecomer. So that means that a current user has a better claim than a late latecomer, the second guy who takes it from them. Right? That's what ownership means: is that I own it even when someone takes it from me. So the very notion of ownership, the very idea, implies that an earlier claimant has a better claim than a later, the late somebody who takes it from him later. So if you go back and regress that, like the regression theorem, you get to a point where the first guy took it from the state of ownership – I mean the state of wilderness, the state of the commons in the world, and when he took it, he didn't violate anyone's rights because no one had it by definition. Mm -hmm. So that first act is a pristine act that can't be challenged, and he has a better claim than anyone who comes later because of the latecomer principle, because of the ownership principle. That's why the first use principle has to be in, uh, in – has to be the principle reasonable people would agree on for us to live. So we have to assume we have a community of people that are relatively benevolent, want to live in peace and prosperity with each other, and they would all, using their reason, 
come to agree on this general abstract principle. And then over time, that principle would be applied in concrete disputes and situations by courts and tribunals, and a body of law would gradually emerge that would refine and refine and refine this. You have more and more concrete legal principles that apply to principle, to situations. Like in the beginning, everything is sort of like we know the general principle, but we have to apply it. So there's some uncertainty, but it's better than nothing. But over time, the body of law develops, and then you know. You know exactly what the rules are. You like you know how long how long you can leave your property untended before people are going to assume that you abandoned it. You know, if you're gone for 30 years, weeds are growing up, no one knows where you are, and people start using it and you don't stop them, eventually they're gonna home they're gonna take it by uh, acquisitive prescription mm -hmm. or by statute of limitations. So these rules will start developing and then you know what they are. Or like the like the rule I mentioned earlier. You know, if you live in a regular neighborhood where the custom is for people to be able to walk across their lawns to retrieve an errant softball or football or baseball or to knock on their door for a cup of sugar, then that rule has been established and people know what it is. Now, you can always opt out of it with an act of communication, but you know what it is. So that helps increase the certainty in society, legal certainty. Which promotes economic growth because now you can do better plans and have more long-term planning and things like that. So it all kind of converges on each other. Now, the concrete answer is I think people would have insurance. Now, I'm not an expert on this. This is what Hoppe and Bob Murphy and uh, David Friedman and others have written on the Tannehills. Um, the, the, the prediction is that you would have insurance companies. People would tend to have insurance to insure themselves from liability. And from acts of theft from, from outlaws and criminals, and the insurance company would then have an incentive to reduce the amount of theft so that they don't have to pay out as many claims, and that they would hire and work out arrangements to have security and police and defense and to crime prevention, right? Um, so it would be a natural thing. And then if there's a dispute, they would have agreements with each other, just like countries now have treaties with each other. Uh, to extradite criminals or to respect each other's judgments in their own courts, you would have agreements because it's more it's the customers of these agencies would prefer that their agencies work out peaceful agreements with other agencies rather than going to war with each other because war is expensive and my premiums are going to be higher, right? So there's always an economic incentive for peace and for cooperation and compromise over fights and battles. Ultimately, the, the main uses of force would be self-defense against the, the staunch minority of people that are outlaws and criminals, and the force we authorize to, to re recover our property when it's stolen and to get restitution when someone commits a really bad crime. So, okay, so a couple of questions there that I want to pull on thread. So, so these rules that you sort of mentioned, these rules and norms within a community, could could one argue that they're sort of like a, a quasi constitution in a sense? Because I guess you my can, question that follows on yeah, from you, that you is can, like, you, you can call them that, sure. Okay, so so how do these rules then um, scale across larger and larger populations? So so in, in my like, I I don't believe that norms and rules and customs actually can scale very well and hence why i'm a bit more of a localist than anything else you know i think mm. the more fragmented and more local we are so 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 would you agree with that or could, could you sort of talk me through how yeah you know although although i would have an aversion to the word constitution because 
it literally means to make to make right to constitute and the purpose of the mm -hmm. constitution like in the us was to constitute a new government so it was it was really people think of it as the protection of rights or the framework of law but they think of it that way because that's the propaganda that was mm. used to sell it so it was really the purpose of it was to create a new central state but because of fears that it would violate rights and become too powerful, they tried to put limits in there to limit what this new state would do, and then they they characterized that as, well, look, it protects our rights, which means we're creating a dangerous new beast, but we're putting some shackles on them. Well, the purpose of it wasn't to protect rights. It was to create a new government. Now, they did believe that they were creating this new powerful beast as a guardian to protect our rights, but… That's not how it works out. It's really a dangerous beast that has its own interests, and it, it, it's, it, it protects us only enough to get our consent to keep taking taxes from us. But mm -hmm. it, it's basically keeping the, keeping the slaves from having an, up, an uprising. Right? That's all it does. Yeah. So I would use a different term, but uh, people think of it as a framework. Um, I think the, the current international model is a, is a good is a, the current international system is a good model to think of for the way. Uh, free society would work. So right now you have roughly 200 sovereign nation states or countries, and they they all have a baseline of abstract principles that they agree to, which is international law. Like uh, sovereignty is one; everyone should be left alone. And pacta sunt servanda is the international principle that agreements are to be respected, which means treaties. Treaties have a binding effect, which means contracts. So basically, it's Leave me alone because I had this country first. So it's kind of like a, an analog of the Lockean first homesteading principle and respect contracts, which is what I said are the two basic rules of all private law is first ownership and contract. Um, and so it works to a rough degree. Countries are independent. They trade with each other. They're citizens. Now, it works on a, on a massive scale, but there's no reason they couldn't be smaller. You could imagine… 2,000 city-states or 10,000 city-states in the world instead of one. So I do believe – and by the way, if you want to read more on this or, or your listeners do, um, a good source on this would be Randy Barnett's book, The Structure of Liberty. Part of that book I've criticized for being too Hayekian because – but a lot of it is great. It's anarchist theory, and he, he imagines like the legal system and an interplay of a what he calls a polycentric world, which means kind of what you're talking about, localism. So – you have abstract legal principles, and then they get more and more concrete, but the abstract principles are the ones that can be shared globally, right? Like basically the, the general statement like first ownership or first use ownership and then contract, right? And then different regions are going to develop their own legal – concrete legal rules according to the, the customs, the values of the people, their history. And they might be different from region to region, but there's no problem with that. Just like there's no problem now with, you know, France might have a certain law on how you solemnize a will, and England might have a different set of rules on how a will is solemnized. But that's okay to have different rules because they generally apply only within that jurisdiction or that region, right? So there's no conflict between these regions because what they do, sort of like what people do in the privacy of their own bedrooms, is their business. Like, Whatever sexuality or whatever I want to have doesn't affect you because it's in the walls of my own bedroom. So 
Likewise, I think that the, the internal concrete rules that would develop on a micro level in different regions would, would tend to be different. Um, now, I think they would also have some common features, you know, but they might have different language. They might have different, different details. You know, the age of consent might be 16 in one country and 18 in another and 15 in another. But the basic ideas would still be there, just the details would vary. But those details usually wouldn't be in conflict with each other because they're enforced only within a certain territory. And then you mm -hmm. can just take that to a micro, my, more and more micro levels down to the individual which, or the family unit at least, which would be basically anarcho-capitalist. Okay, so so a couple of things I wanna pull on there. Maybe before I ask about um, how, that the size of these sort of um, smaller regions. I, I wanted to ask, how, how do you, how do we synchronize or make consistent, um, you know, those sort of larger scale ideas that you said, so sort of the, um, the first, the ownership by first possession and contract is sort of like the overarching thing. H how do we, how do we sync that up with societies i guess or regions which um have emerged slightly differently like like i mean for example the confucian uh east you know like the the idea of um you know i guess you know china and japan and india and like some of those places emerge with a different set of values that may be inconsistent with these sort of first principles ideas so, so how do we i mean how do we navigate I, I that, that I mean, in a way, one analogy could be the, the Bitcoin network. Like you have the the the, the you have the um, the high powered base currency, and then you have layers, mm -hmm. right? You have different layers, so you can think of it almost like that. Like the the high the base layer is just the general the general abstract rules. So if there's a if there's a, so if there's a conflict between regions, either it's on the abstract rules that 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 apply between these regions. Or it's just internally. If it's internally, I don't see there being a conflict. It's just that region has a different set of internal rules. Mm -hmm. And and by the way, the more if you have ten thousand city states, the more of these you have, then the more option for exit there is. So people in there, yes. if they don't like it, they can just leave, and that will put a that will put a big break on how egregiously bad these little regions can be because they just won't be able to keep their citizens if it's too bad. Um, and then a second thing would be the evolutionary thing. I would say that um, there can be reasonable variation in how these rules are implemented, in, but if they deviate too far or in an unreasonable way or in an illiberal way, then because these rules are not compatible with natural law and with the way humans trade, these regions are going to be poorer. They're not going to prosper, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so mm -hmm. over time, they're going to be just overwhelmed by the… The, the other regions that are all relatively more liberal and that they grow stronger. Um, paradoxically, see, Hoppe points out that in today's world with democracy, you have this paradoxical thing where the countries that are relatively more, more liberal with their internal policies like the United States, um, they tend to be more bellicose internationally. So that's because if you have a, a freer market internally, you're going to be richer. But when you're richer, the state is richer because it's taxing us. And when the state's richer, mm -hmm. it follows its own internal logic with respect to other states and uses that power to conquer other states or to boss them around or to expand its territory. So paradoxically, the nation – so like the Soviet Union was horrible internally, but that made them poor, so they could only afford to do so much 
internationally, whereas the U.S. But that logic disappears when you have small city states because they could never have that much power to conquer 9,900 other countries, and their citizens would just leave if their taxes are being wasted on these bullshit, you know, uh, interventions. With, uh, uh, so. Right now, with democracy, it 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 it, it does create the, some countries win out by natural selection. The ones that happen to adopt free market policies are going to get bigger and richer, but then they're going to tend to ruin it by using it for interventionism, foreign interventionism. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, but mm -hmm. hopefully that would hopefully that that tendency would, would that paradox would diminish with smaller and smaller states and that are more capitalist and smaller. Yeah, well, th th this is, I guess. What you just described there is the 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 natural or probably instinctual conclusion that um, Bitcoin has come up with, and why the whole Bitcoin fixes this meme exists is I, mm -hmm. I actually think the only way for large scale nation states to exist is through the monopoly on the creation of money. Like they they they, they, they cannot do it in any other way. So you break that. You you actually yep. make it economically infeasible to grow the Leviathan any larger than you know some sort what, of manageable what, what they can state. tax basically yeah yeah I used to think that Bitcoiners are a little bit nuts and, and utopians but I'm I'm starting to believe more and more when you say Bitcoin I mean I'm in Texas we had we I'm in Houston we had the I was without power and the water for several days in freezing cold weather a couple of weeks ago because the windmills broke down right mm -hmm. uh, if we had more windmills. Then we could have just, you know, even if a third of them broke, we could have, it would have been fine. We don't have more, more windmills. Why not? Because it, it's not feasible to build windmills that you don't use at peak uh, all the time. But if you have mining farms using the power, you could build excess capacity. And then when there's an emergency, they can just stop mining and the, sell the electricity, you know, so it's going to help fix the energy problem. And I think. I agree. The more you think about it, states can only tax so much. Tax rates have been like in the West have been pretty constant for the last 50 years, like, you know, 20 something percent is all they can tax. It's hard to get away with more taxes. So they spend more than they tax because they can sell treasuries, right? They can sell debt. But they when can Bitcoin, borrow from the future, exactly. Yeah, they can do all this. Bitcoin's going to remove that ability. I think Bitcoin's going to remove the ability of, of, of nation states to operate at a deficit, which means. They won't be able to spend all this money on, on wars and, and yep. interventionism. So they're going to have to do only what they can tax people. And if they try to tax them too much, it's not going to work. They're going to they're yep. going to become they're going to become uh, they're going to become uh, you know uh, banana republics. Correct. And and I think by virtue of that, that's where they start to actually break down because then what you have is you don't have the the existence of a nanny state or the existence of a central bank or the existence of something. That can potentially bail you out. Like all of that starts to break down, and you actually do get um, separation, you get fragmentation, you get localism, and you get sort of a movement back to what I think is um, the actual, you know, the realistic nature of um, existence amongst human beings, which doesn't scale very well. Like, you know, different people want to live differently. Um, you know, not notwithstanding those sort of core principles that I think, you know, you elucidated earlier, which are absolutely important. But other than that, like, you know, even like, you know, I'm writing a piece now talking about how the the, the technocratic uh, Leviathan has emerged. So like, you know, people are talking about how Google and Amazon and everything like that are becoming 
you know, more important and more powerful than nation state. The only reason they've been able to emerge is because the monopoly on money, the, the state existed. Yep. And the state has kind of signed this Faustian bargain where they've deformed society to such an extent that these technocratic elites have managed to emerge abhorrently like you you know I, I don't believe monopolies can actually exist in a competitive world like because right, as right. you become larger and larger you you not only get attacked more but you can't move as efficiently so you know naturally speaking competitors come in and they you know they take your territory and you know the, the dynamic nature of existence also means that what you might have been doing today is not the same as you know what's valuable in five or ten years from now so so monopolies can't last unless a monopoly like the state exists in the first place, in which case you get close to that. And then, you know, you, you create your own yeah. version of a fucking monopoly. Yeah. So again, a, uh, and, and also, uh, you know, at the same time that the state as Bitcoin starts to erode their ability to spend money that they, they can't tax, um, they don't have. Um, and they're, they're less at the same time that the state is le less able to support a welfare state. Um, at the same time, people are getting richer, so they don't need it as much either, right? So mm -hmm. people can save more, and their savings grow, and so they don't need they don't need the state to be their nanny state to take care of them in retirement. They can take care of their own retirement. So all these things will complement each other, I believe. Um, and as for money, you know, like as a libertarian, as an anarchist, you can you can identify all the horrible things the state does, the legal systems, we, the laws that we have. You know, the drug war is horrible. Taxation is horrible. Central banking is horrible. Government schools are horrible. Intellectual property is horrible. Um, I think sometimes you could argue that intellectual property is the worst, but I've I've kind of come to believe that the two worst things are intellectual property and central banking because central banking really is what supports the state, and the state's corruption of money really has – we can't even imagine all the horrible ways it's permeated mm -hmm. and pervaded society. It's changed the character of people. It's changed our mm -hmm. habits. It's changed how we – go into debt we buy a house with a mortgage uh you know we, people invest in the stock market they don't know anything about it because they have to because the dollars yeah. erode over time all these things that we do now uh, are going to change radically and it's going to improve social uh, human culture and habits and character for the better i think we're going to be better savers we're going to not be as much debtors we're going to have a higher a lower time preference uh, you know, the government, you know, people will be more individually responsible. I, everything is going to get better, I think, with Bitcoin, and, and it's yeah. going to limit the state. And hopefully, we'll have a soft landing, a soft transition rather than Mad Max world, you know. Um, uh, yeah, hopefully. I was, I actually, I, I wrote a piece um, last year called Utopian Dystopias, and sort of like the, and it was kind of a, like me from my position kind of bashing utilitarianism and bashing you know what all these people think that you know somehow some person's vision of what is right is um you know i always say it's like the 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 it's the classic um the road to hell is paved with good intentions is you know someone's utopia is another person's dystopia and like you know bitcoin sort of um you know d demolishes all of those those fantasies but um the in, in there, I say that fragmentation um, or the sort of the breakdown of these monolithic societies is going to happen whether we like it or not. So, so that it's not a question of if, it's a question of how. Is do we get there more consciously through like what you said, like a softer kind of landing, or 
does this clusterfuck of a monolith collapse in on itself because the parasite just got too big and the whole thing broke? Um, and, and that's yeah. really the only question. And the U.S. Um, is the one I worry about the most because the the U.S. government is the most powerful and it has it has the dollar hegemony over the world right now. So it's the one that really stands to lose the most when the dollar stops being the world reserve currency. Uh, so I'm, but because the U.S. is sort of a leader in the Bitcoin space, maybe mm, mm. it'll be impossible for them to stop it too. And so they'll have to let it peacefully start co-opting what they're doing, and they'll have to. Bend to, you know, have to, they'll have to, they'll have to bend to reality. When they can't spend as much, they'll have to figure out a way not to spend as much. I mean, the the game theory would be really interesting. So, so I got I got a couple more questions. I know you've got to run soon. How much time do you roughly have? Say seven more minutes. Seven. And if okay. you want, we so can, let, let, if you want, we could do a part two later and just avoid all the introductory stuff and just do yeah, questions. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think it might be worth doing, but I guess. In the seven minutes that we have, let, let's talk through. I, I think we'll have to come back to the IP question because I want to talk about sort of you know the plight of the inventor and all this sort of shit. But um, let, let's just ask one question here: Is wh why do you think it is that a lot of prominent um, libertarians like so? We've just sort of dis discussed Bitcoiners, you know, and there was obviously this whole row with Eric July recently and all this sort of shit. And it's like for me having come to libertarianism i guess after bitcoin um uh, mm -hmm. for me just like libertarianism for me was just so consistent i was like holy fuck it makes so much sense um mm -hmm. wh why do you think a lot of libertarians just don't get bitcoin like or even you know generally end up going down the shitcoin path like roger ver is a perfect example of someone who's you know quite a strong libertarian but complete fucking moron when it comes to like economic reality um i think those are two different things so um the um, I kind of I, I thought most libertarians were kind of into Bitcoin, but maybe that's just the ones I see. I, I guess the ones that are not into it are probably not into it because they're older and they're more used to fighting the battle their way, right? So they fight it with mm -hmm. electoral politics and the Libertarian Party, the Ron Paul movement, and also by, by being gold bugs. And maybe they're a little bit too complacent mm. in their understanding of Austrian economics, and they think the regression theorem means that it has to be a physical commodity. And They may just be too old. Maybe it's just the old generations have to get wiped out, and the new ones will learn. So there could be a bit of that hangover effect from uh, just the model they're used to, which is gold. Sound money is gold, and you fight it by you know, uh, Libertarian Party activism um and then the roger ver thing the shitcoin thing um i think that's partly the same thing like so you had these early libertarians and by the way i never i was never one of these guys like i mean i've been into it since about 2013 um dipping my toe into it and you know i started getting a little bit on occasion i i never knew which one to buy or whether it was going to work but when I got so, I never spent it. Like I was annoyed by these libertarians who would say, "Oh, you need to use it." It's like it's a stunt to them. It's like you know, like mm. you'd have a a vending. I went to Porkfest twenty. When was it? Twenty eleven, twenty thirteen. There was a vending machine in the woods selling bitcoins. You know, and people would sell the t-shirts. You could, you could use a QR code and use your 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 wallet on your phone to buy a t-shirt with bitcoins. But 
it's almost like just a proof like oh it can work look i can do this it's neat but it really wasn't convenient it didn't add anything you already had dollars yeah, in your wallet yeah. i mean it didn't solve a problem i mean the problem with dollars is not that you can't buy things with them right we have a purpose dollars work fine for medium of exchange right now for payment i mean it works it works for economic calculation the problem with it is that it it's inflated and it loses purchasing power over time right that's the main problem with dollars is that it, is that it's it, it's inflated and it's inflated because the government controls it and it's centralized that's the problem with it so i think that these guys thought that the way to the bitcoin was a threat to money by supplanting the the, the payment network of money and people should start using Morons, it like yeah. activists so they're activists so they they wanted to they were criticizing libertarians for holding their money because you need to spend it. You need to use it. I'm like, why the hell would I use something that's going up in value? It doesn't even make any sense. I think they've conflated the term use. They think use, so, so, so they don't understand that a use is also, you know, uh, storing your wealth. Like that's that's one of the core functions of money is the capacity to store the product of your fucking labor. So I think, I think that 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 for me is a completely. You know, th th those people are moronic. Like they, they just don't get that Bitcoin's primary use case is the demonopolization of money, and and that needs to start with, um, you know, <laughs> not not uh, replacing PayPal, but replacing the the Federal Reserve. That that's that's the key thing there. But c coming back to the libertarian stuff, then. So I I kind of came up with a theory of like the the battered woman syndrome version of libertarians. It's kind of like you know libertarians that have gotten used to um, basically talking about how stupid the state is and all this sort of stuff, but kind of gotten comfortable just complaining about it as opposed to you know believing in any solution or maybe even having become disillusioned with not having a um, a viable solution for the disintegration of the state. Like, would you agree in that sort of, would you agree with that uh, observation or? Probably. And also I, I've, I always think that the activist mentality is always impatient. They want results mm -hmm. now. And mm -hmm. this is one reason why they tend not to be anarchists. They tend to be what I think of as kind of compromising, kind of wishy-washy sellouts because you know they'll compromise with the state, they'll become Republicans or whatever just to make some little improvement now, now, now. God damn it, I want mm, it now. Mm. So they're just they're they're like petulant children stamping their feet. They're too they're too fucking impatient. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you tell them, well, look, we just need to let let Bitcoin gradually grow in value, and eventually it will plateau and reach a point where, yeah, you don't need to hold it all the time because it's appreciating. Then you can. Then, then you might be willing to spend some of it because you're not missing out on this, the huge growth it's going to have during the adoption phase. But if you tell them, well, that might take take ten or twenty years, you know, they don't want to wait ten or twenty years. They mm -hmm. want it to happen mm -hmm. now. Um, and so I get, uh, but I don't even know what they're. Did they really think that people are going to run around buying T-shirts with Bitcoin when money works perfectly fine? And not only that, it's a pain in the ass because. Well, the technology is in its infancy, but not only that, there's capital gains tax on every goddamn purchase or sale. I mean, every sale of Bitcoin. Like if you purchase something, you're selling your Bitcoin. So there's capital gains that's complicated and it's expensive. So because the government has monopolized money for right now and Bitcoin is not legal tender, 
it would be stupid to spend it and to use it in a purchase because then I got to keep track of that little $2 purchase or that $20 purchase and tell my tax accountants at the end of the year to figure out the taxes on it. It's just like it's just not feasible. In my, from what I can tell, it's not feasible. It never was feasible. And it never was feasible for it to ever scale up and become money. It worked at first because it was cheap because it was not being used. But the the, the blockchain isn't is a horrible database. It's inefficient. It's slow by design. It could never be used to track all payments, as far as I understand it. I'm not a technical expert, yep. so it could never be used that way. It's not designed to be used that way. Um, so give up on this pipe dream of using it for daily payments to replace the dollar. So I guess I've, I've bought the maxi arguments to some degree. Yep. Yeah, 100%, 100%. I think you've you've articulated that well. And, and, I, and I think, I guess, even beyond that is like, I, I said it earlier, is, is, is Bitcoin's mission is first and foremost to supplant the, the existing state-owned monopolies on money. You know, if, if we can achieve that, that's, the most important thing everything else stems from there it's it's kind of um that that's sort of the the primary silver bullet and then all the other lead bullets uh come into play but anyway stefan um this was super 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 educational for me um i really want to dig into some of the ip stuff um let, let, let's 100 do a part two i'll drop you a line and we can figure out when we do that um, and we'll either put them together or do them separately. Do you have any other final comments quickly now that you want to mention before we wrap this up? Uh, no, the, I guess my main activity lately has been involvement with this Open Crypto Alliance, which is uh, opencryptoalliance.org. And it's Open Crypto X on Twitter. And we mm -hmm. are a group of people, technologists and business, Bitcoin business types and patent attorneys, and we're trying to come up with ways to help combat the, the threat, the patent threat to the, to the blockchain crypto Bitcoin ecosystem posed by several people and entities that are amassing large numbers of patents that purport to cover aspects of bitcoin technology which is a big threat to bitcoin or to people it's not actually it's not a threat to bitcoin any more than the state is a threat to bitcoin they can't they can't kill it they can slow it down and they can hurt it and they can hurt people in the in in it they can hurt businesses and miners and individuals which is bad um so mm -hmm. i'm working that that's one of my passions right now so any bitcoiners who are concerned about its viability and its speed of adoption and all that, uh, just take a look at Open Crypto Alliance. Awesome, awesome. All right, Stefan, thank you again very much for coming on. Um, I would really look forward to doing a number two. And okay. yeah, man, um, enjoy the rest of your day, buddy. Thank you. I'd be happy to. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye.